I'm excited to get into God's Word today. Uh, if you would go with me to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 1 to 15. Uh, if you're following along on a mobile device, I'm going to be reading from the NIV, but it's also going to be on uh, the screen behind me as well. 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 to 15. This is the reading of God's word. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. Amen. Let me say a prayer for us as we jump into God's word. Holy Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Would you open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to receive what you would have for us today? We entrust this time and our lives into your loving hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, well, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, we are in a year-long sermon series at our church called Childlike Wonder, where we are preaching through uh, every story in the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's a well-known children's Bible. And um, today we come to a story that may not be as familiar as other stories in the Bible, 
Um, but it's one that I think best captures how the gospel can change your life. And we're introduced to this man, Naaman, at the beginning of 2 Kings uh, chapter 5. My, this is my, my son Jack's favorite story in the Jesus Storybook Bible. Every night he's like, tell me about Naaman, okay? And we're introduced to Naaman in verse 1. And, um, uh, you know, you ever tried to play matchmaker uh, with someone and um, you're describing the guy to your friend and you always, you know, make sure you load all the good stuff at the beginning, right? You're like, hey, really want, want you to meet one of my friends. Um, he's super good looking. He's tall. You know, he's a great guy. He's fun. He's easy to get along with. Everyone loves him. Great career. Loves Jesus, right? And the friend you're, you're with usually will say something like, okay, but what's wrong with him though? All right? Because um, there ain't no reason this guy should be single. What's wrong with him? And you're like, okay, well, his family's crazy. And, and they're like, yep, there it is. There's always something, right? And this is how Naaman is introduced in our story in that first verse. We read, now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. He was a great man. He was a commander. He was highly regarded. He was a war hero. Naaman had an impeccable resume. His life screamed success, but he had leprosy. There's always a but. There's always something written in the fine print. There's always a shadow side, a darkness, a secret, some source of shame in your life that you don't want people to know about, some part of you that you don't want people to see. She's so accomplished. She has an incredible career, such a great leader. But she struggles with depression and loneliness. He's an amazing man, youngest CEO in his company's history. He's got three vacation homes, but his marriage is falling apart and his kids want nothing to do with him. She's got millions of followers on social media. She's so gifted. She has, she's already doing such great things at such a young age, but she struggles with severe body dysmorphia. There's always a but. There's always something Underneath the polished outward persona, behind what looked like the perfect life, Naaman had a problem that all his money and power and experience could not solve. He woke up every morning in his beautiful home, hung out with his important friends, had this life everyone envied. But he came home at the end of the day, he took off his shirt and looked at himself in the mirror, and he knew he was sick. He knew he was severely unwell. You see, when people only see us from a distance, they see all of our victories, but they're rarely close enough to see our vulnerability. We forget that behind every curated social media post or TikTok video is a real human being who more often than not is nothing like the person you see in that video. You know that so many of the people you admire and respect, so many of the people whose lives you wish you could have, often go home, look at themselves in the mirror, and they often don't see themselves the way you see them. L.A. is full of Naamans. 
This church is full of Naamans. People who look like they have their lives together on the outside, but who are completely unraveling on the inside. For Naaman, the footnote on his life was his leprosy. Now, leprosy in those times was an incurable skin disease that was the most feared disease of that day. Some scholars compare people's perception of leprosy uh, to the way people perceived the AIDS virus when it first uh, became a thing in the 80s. Right? Immediately, if you had AIDS, you were isolated, you were separated from community, you were humiliated. It was a big scarlet letter on you. Well, in the same way, if you were a leper, you weren't allowed to talk to anyone. You had to wear torn clothing. You could not wash your hair. Anytime you entered a public space, you had to close your mouth and yell, unclean, unclean, so that everyone in that space could get out the way. In fact, according to Levitical law, if you came even within 50 paces of a leper, you were legally allowed to stone them to death. So during that time, leprosy wasn't just a physical ailment. It was complete emotional and spiritual separation. And the thing with leprosy is that it often started as a small spot. So you could see it at the beginning, but everyone else couldn't see it. At some point, it would begin to reveal itself. At some point, it would start to become unmanageable, unmanageable, and it would start to consume your entire body. Most scholars believe Naaman's leprosy was probably in its infant stage because throughout the story, you still see him interacting with people. But Naaman was well aware of the fact that it was only a matter of time before everyone knew what he already knew about himself. And that's the thing, right? Some of us are really good at hiding our spots. We're very good putting on a smile, wearing a mask, projecting a certain image of ourselves. We do it at church all the time. We wear our Sunday best, we come here, we try to convince ourselves and everyone around us that we're okay when we know deep down inside we're not okay. There's so much going on. I can tell you this because I meet with people in this community every week, and I myself am shocked sometimes to hear about what people are shouldering. I'm like, you're going through that? I would have never known seeing you on Sunday. And at some point, no matter how hard you try, whether you like it or not, whatever the quote, but is in your life, it will be revealed. It doesn't matter how much money you make, how self-sufficient you think you are, no amount of success can make you immune to the pain of this life. You may think you are the kindest, most patient person in the entire world, but at some point, you will encounter a person who will hurt you. You will encounter a person you can't stand, a person who makes your blood boil. No matter how prepared you think you are for every worst-case scenario, you're the best planner, you got all your ducks in a row, something will happen. The loss of a loved one, bankruptcy, loss of a job, abandonment by a community of people you considered your best friends. Something will happen that you could never have predicted. And when those moments come, we will try everything in our power to fix ourselves. We will buy more things. We will find new friends. We will go on vacation. We will turn to substances and sex and Netflix to try to numb the pain. And this is what Naaman did. 
If you keep reading the story in verse 2, we're told that a slave girl who's serving Naaman's wife goes to her and says, hey, I wish my master Naaman would go to this prophet in Samaria. I'm sure this prophet could cure him. So Naaman, hearing this, he goes to his boss, who's the king of Aram, and he says, hey, look, um, this slave girl who works for me told me apparently there's this guy in Israel who might be able to cure my leprosy. So the king of Aram is like, oh, by all means, you should go. And don't just go empty-handed. Here, take this letter from me, and I want you to give it to the king of Israel. Now, that's very interesting because the slave girl didn't say anything about the king of Israel. She said there was a prophet in Samaria. And yet notice, immediately, both Naaman and his boss automatically assume that the person who can solve their problem is the king. They think it's the person with political power who can fix Naaman. Now, I have to say this because we're in an election year and I'm scared, okay? Every day I pray, Lord, spare me this election season, okay? But here's what I'll say. I believe the church should absolutely care about politics. I believe that as a church, we should care about who's in office and which voices are leading and shaping our country. But if there is anything the past 10 years have shown us, it's that politics and the government cannot fix the human condition. You see, we keep looking for human solutions to spiritual problems. We keep going to the king of Israel when she said nothing about the king. She said there's a prophet there. And not only does Naaman believe the king of Israel is the one who can cure him, we read that he takes with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. Commentators say converted to today's buying power, this would have been in the vicinity of three quarters of a billion dollars. This is a lot of money. So Naaman takes all of the wealth he's accumulated in this life. He takes all of his social capital. He's holding a letter from the king of Aram himself. And he takes all of it because he believes these things are going to get him healed. And isn't this what you and I do all the time? We try to cure our emptiness and our brokenness by making more money, by going on more extravagant vacations, buying a bigger home, we go to the top of the food chain thinking the solution is there, thinking our deliverance is there. But everything about this story shows us that we do not find healing by going up. We find healing by going down. From beginning to end, Naaman keeps trying to go up. Just throw more money at it. Talk to the most important guy in the room. Let me buy my deliverance. But at every turn, God takes him down. At every turn, God humbles him and confronts him with the reality that as much as he has, none of it is going to solve his deepest issue. The way out of this is not up, but down. The fact that the first person to tell Naaman about the cure is not a king, but a slave girl, should have immediately tipped him off that this was not going to go the way he thought. The fact that the cure that he's looking for is apparently found in Israel should have tipped him off that this is not going to go the way he thought. You see, for Naaman, who was a Syrian commander, basically Israel was one of his conquests. In fact, they had already executed multiple successful military campaigns on Israel. 
right? Israel was on the bottom as far as they were concerned. And now he hears that the only cure for his leprosy is there. You ever have those moments where there's someone in your life who you perceive to be beneath you? Like you dismiss them, you talk behind your back, but then something happens in your life and you need help. And I don't know why God is so funny. It's always that person who can rescue you. It's always that person who's like, I'll help. It's one of the most humbling things you can ever experience. And this is exactly what's happening to Naaman. A slave girl is not supposed to give him advice. Israel is not supposed to be the place of the cure. God keeps breaking Naaman down. And there's more. Naaman finally gets to the prophet Elisha's house. And I love this little detail in the story. Elisha doesn't even come out to greet him. He's a great man. He's a military commander. Elisha doesn't even bother to come out. He sends a messenger. And Naaman's pissed. In verse 11, he's like, I thought at the very least the prophet would come out to see me. You see, Naaman still has such a high view of himself. Right? He still thinks he deserves special treatment because of who he is. He's a great man. He's a commander of one of the most powerful armies in the world, and he's offended that Elisha doesn't even bother to come out. You know, um, our church has garnered a reputation that makes me cringe a lot, okay? People tell me, I hear Citizens is the Asian celebrity church. And my friends from outside the church often ask me, do you guys have like a VIP section where you sit all the celebrities? If we ever create a VIP section at this church, just fire me. Let me go. To me, even the question makes zero sense because the whole premise of the gospel is that Jesus came for the least, the last, and the lowly. So no, we don't have a VIP section. And in fact, the quote, celebrities who do come to our church, they're not here because they're famous. They're here because they're broken, just like all of us. Naaman wants the VIP treatment because in his mind, he deserves it. That's what power and money and prestige is supposed to get you, right? Life is supposed to get easier, right? Money is supposed to solve your problems, right? And Naaman's furious because he's never encountered something that his greatness or his intelligence could not solve. When Elisha says, when Elisha's messenger says, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, we read that Naaman walks off in a rage and he says, aren't there better rivers out there? Verse 12, he says, are not Abana and Farpar better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? He's like, you know how dirty that water is? There are better rivers out there. He's like, I ain't going in that dirty water. Do you know who I am? It's like, we know who you are, Naaman, and you have leprosy. Oh, we know who you are and what you've done, but you realize you're dirty too. People say, I ain't going to that church with all those dirty people. It's like, you know you're dirty too, right? And it takes Naaman's servants pleading with him for Naaman to finally agree to go in the water. Okay, so let me just recap this for you. You have Naaman. 
This guy who looks invincible on the surface, who's got this horrible problem, only he knows about that he's afraid people will start to find out about. A king can't solve it, his money can't solve it, his friends can't solve it. And it's a slave girl, a prophet, and a couple servants who show him the way. Naaman keeps wanting to go up, God keeps bringing him down. God keeps shattering his expectations. And what God is trying to show Naaman is that what he needs most are not people who have their lives together. Naaman needs broken people to show him the way to be healed. Why does the church exist? The whole point of this community is not so you can be around people who have their lives together. The whole point of this community is so you can be around people who don't have their lives together, who are broken, who are hurt, who are in process. You know, it really breaks my heart when people come to citizens and they say, I wish this church was more spiritual. I wish there were more people I could respect. I wish more people here were like this or that. I need cleaner water. And I want to tell them, don't despise dirty water. Because dirty water is where people get healed. It's in a gathering of broken people where healing is found. You've all heard the saying, the church is not a museum of saints, it's a hospital for sinners. There's only one type of person you expect to see when you walk into a hospital, sick people. That's it. What the church is, is that we're just a group of broken people gathered around the God who was broken for us. Not because of anything we've done, not because we deserved it, but out of his sheer grace. How does Naaman finally get healed? Not by anything he brought to the table. He brought all his horses and chariots and wealth, and not one of those things saved him. You can bring all your talents, your titles, your religiosity, your good morals, your great prayer life, your everyday devotional life, and you can, none of it is going to save you. You know that? None of it is going to save you. Naaman has to be saved the same way all of us have to be saved, by grace alone. And for someone as accomplished and as highly regarded as Naaman, that is a difficult pill to swallow. People say, man, Christianity is such a cop-out because grace, it makes everything so easy. No. Grace is one of the most difficult pills to swallow. It's one of the most difficult things to truly understand and grasp, especially for successful people like Naaman. Because your entire life, every other table you've sat at, every other door that was open for you, it was because of the things you've done. God's table is the only table that you get to sit at, not on the basis of what you've done, but on the basis of what has been done for you. Because God put on skin and bone, and because he was nailed to a cross. Our church is full of Naaman's. People who have made it by worldly standards. People who are highly respected in their fields. People for, who perform at the highest level and who others look up to. But you see, sometimes our success can be the greatest barrier to faith. Because we want to bring all those things to God and say, don't I deserve it? Shouldn't you bless me now? Doesn't this make me worthy of love? But you see, what the gospel tells us is that there is nothing about the person sitting next to you that makes you any better or any worse than them. 
It means all are broken and all must come empty-handed in order to be cleansed. The way to healing is not by going up, but by coming down. And it's only when Naaman has been brought all the way down that he's finally able to grasp the heart of true faith. Now, let me get a little bit more practical because people ask me all the time, well, how do I know like I'm exercising true faith? Because I doubt, I have questions. How do I know? What is the litmus test? And here it is. We see it in this story. The litmus test of true faith is that you are willing to accept God's process in your life. You see, Naaman came with a very specific set of expectations for how he was going to be healed. He tried to write his own prescription. He said, I have this problem, and I thought the prophet was going to come out to see me. I thought he was going to wave his hand over my leprosy and cure it. Naaman wanted to dictate the terms of his healing. In fact, he was ready to go home with his leprosy because he didn't like the prescription that was laid out for him. I want you to think about that. He's got this problem that's going to mean complete physical, emotional, spiritual separation, and he knows it's killing him. He goes to find the cure, and they give him a prescription that doesn't match his expectations. He's mad, and he's willing to go home unhealed. Some of us would rather live with leprosy than yield to God's process. We'd rather go home unhealed because we're unwilling to be humbled. God says, forgive those who've wronged you because I see that this bitterness is killing you. I see that it's festering and I, think, I see that it's hurting you. And you're like, if this means I have to talk to them though, I'd rather go home unhealed because I'm unwilling to be humbled. God says, I think you're working too hard. You're starting to leak on your family you're not present with them. You're a different person. You're not the person you were created to be. And you're like, well, if taking a break means I have to sacrifice my financial goals. I'd rather go home unhealed because I'm unwilling to be humbled. This is what's happening to Naaman here. You see, our unwillingness to embrace God's process often keeps us from experiencing God's promise. I want to say that again. Our unwillingness to embrace God's process often keeps us from experiencing God's promise. In many ways, what Naaman was asked to do was so simple. He said, just go dip yourself in the Jordan seven times. That's it. But it was so hard for him to do because it didn't fit into his paradigm of expectation. It didn't make sense to him. Maybe you're here, you're checking out Christianity for the first time. You're curious about the faith. We want to welcome you. We're so glad you're here. Or maybe you're here, you've been in church your entire life. One thing is guaranteed. Every person sitting in here is looking for healing. We all have something in our lives that we want to be healed from. And often we try to write our own prescriptions to cure the problems in our lives. We throw our best solutions at it. Our charisma, our looks, our wealth, our good deeds. Thinking these things will give us what we need. But you see, the first step to healing is to acknowledge that even on our best days, we don't have what it takes to fix the brokenness in our lives. All of our best solutions will not work. If we want to be healed, we have to allow God to do it on his terms. You know, when I first read this story, 
I was like, why did God give Naaman such a strange command, right? Why go in the Jordan, dip yourself seven times? That's so weird, right? Like, it would have been much more miraculous. I think it would have garnered so many more oohs and ahs if the moment Naaman stepped into the water, you see his skin starting to be healed, and with every step, he starts to get healed and rejuvenated. That would have been awesome, and yet God gives him this strange command, dip yourself in the Jordan seven times, and only on the seventh time are you going to be cured. And God does this all the time. When his people were outside of Jericho, he says, walk around the city once a day for six days in a row. On the seventh day, walk around it seven times, and then the city will be yours. It's like, why does God always do that? Like, we bring God a broken relationship. We say, heal it. And he's like, okay, you might have to call this person five times before they respond. And you're like, why? Why do you do that? And it's because God is not primarily interested in fixing your situation. What he cares most about is making you whole on the inside. I know we, we have, a lot of us are going through stuff at our church. And we bring all of our difficult circumstances, all of our broken relationships to God. And I pray that God heals you. I pray that God heals your loved one who is going through cancer. I pray for a miracle over your life. But know this, from the very beginning, God has not been primarily interested on fixing our situation. He has been most interested about fixing our hearts. Naaman wanted healing for his skin. God wanted healing for Naaman's soul. Sometimes we're so focused on the way we want God to fix our lives, we don't understand that what he really wants to do is change our hearts. We get frustrated that God isn't giving us the job that we want. God, I've been waiting for years for the spouse. God, I've been waiting for years. I've been praying for kids. But the question is, will you trust God's process even when you can't see the proof? Will you remain in him? even when you don't see results. I want you to think about this. The first time Naaman goes into the water, nothing happens. He looks at his skin, leprosy is still there. Second time he dips, nothing. Third time, nothing. Fourth, by the fourth, I'm thinking, if I'm Naaman, I'm thinking, God, you better do something, because I look dumb right now. Right? It's like, like what, what is that? I'm, I'm assuming six times doesn't see one thing change. And yet Naaman surrenders to God's process and he goes down the seventh time. This is what faith looks like. Often when you're in the process of obeying God, you may not see any immediate evidence of change. Just like when you first start working out. You often do not see immediate evidence evidence of change but the question is will you remain even when you don't see the results it's very interesting right we we all come to church with a specific set of expectations for how god will work and it, when those expectations are, aren't met we're out and we often miss out on what god wants to do because we're unwilling to trust his process god gives us a community group 
we go to our first small group meeting, and we're like, everyone here is so weird. Everyone's so young. Everyone's so old. Everyone's unrelatable. I don't think I can get much out of this. But you know what? We say, I'll go a second time. Nothing. Third time, nothing. And the sad thing is so many of us will drop out at that point, and we miss out on the bigger thing God is trying to do in our hearts. The most miraculous thing that happened after Naaman dipped seven times wasn't that he was cured of his leprosy. The most miraculous thing that happened is that God changed Naaman's heart. It's interesting in verse 15, after he's cured, Naaman actually doesn't say anything about his leprosy. He doesn't say, behold, my, I'm cured. He doesn't say, oh my goodness, my leprosy is gone. You know what he says? The first thing he says, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Just a few verses ago, Naaman was referring to the God of Israel as his God, as Elisha's God. In verse 15, Elisha's God is now Naaman's God. At the end of the story, it's not even about the leprosy anymore. It's about coming into a relationship with the living God. I talk to so many people who have been through the valley, who have been through the darkness, who have experienced cancer and disease just wreck their lives and the lives of their family members. And all the time, they tell me at the end of it all, I'm so, whether they were cured or not, at the end of it all, they will tell me, at some point, though, it didn't even matter because I got him. In our darkest valleys, the thing God gives us is his presence. More than fixing our situation, he changes our hearts. Friends, the good news is that what happened to Naaman can happen to all of us. We too can experience healing from our emptiness, our bitterness, our trauma, not because of something we can do, but because of something that has been done for us. Because someone went down to the depths for us. In Philippians 2, we read that Jesus Christ, who was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We needed a suffering servant to show us the way. And on the surface, it made no sense that the God of the universe would be nailed to a cross. Jesus didn't meet anyone's expectations of the Messiah but you see, what people didn't realize was that the way up was down. We just read it in our Apostles' Creed today. He descended to the dead, but on the third day he rose again from the dead, making a way for you and I to be healed and cleansed and brought into a right relationship with God. This afternoon, let me just close with this question. Where will you place your trust to be healed? Will you place your trust in yourself, in your achievements, in your performance? Or will you place your trust in Jesus? Will you embrace his process even when his process doesn't make sense, even when his process flies in the face of your expectations? 
Will you come empty-handed and surrender and say, God, heal me. I trust you because you're the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Let's pray. I want to give us a moment just to sit with that a little bit. That we would bring all of who we are and lay it before Jesus now. The parts we don't want people to know about, the parts we're ashamed of, the parts where we desperately need healing. We lay it before Jesus and we pray the verse that Richard referenced in his baptism testimony. Father, not as I will, but as you will. Let's take a moment to pray. Lord, we confess that we are so broken. God, for many of us, the church is a place not where we can um, completely embrace our brokenness, but for many of us, church is another place where we have to put off, put on a smile, where we have to wear a mask, where we have to project a certain image of ourselves. But God, we pray that in this moment, we would come to you empty-handed, in surrender, lay the deepest, darkest, most shameful thing we're holding at your feet, knowing that in your life, in your death and resurrection, we can be free. Again, not by anything, not because of anything we bring to the table, but simply because of your grace. We thank you for this reminder. Help us as a church to truly be a hospital for broken people, a place where people can come and experience the joy of being known by you. We love you. We thank you for this word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.